Welcome to Work From The Inside Out, a podcast that highlights real-life stories, practical strategies, and best practices for transitioning your career from unhappiness and dissatisfaction to fulfillment, meaning, and joy. Now here is your host, career and executive coach, Tammy Guler loeb Hey, everybody. I am so delighted to introduce my guest today, Jeffrey Hull. Jeffrey Hull, PhD, is the CEO of Leadershift, a leadership development consultancy based in New York City and author of the best-selling book, Flex, The Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World from Penguin Random House, published in 2019. A highly sought after speaker, consultant, and executive coach with over 25 years working with C-suite leaders worldwide, Dr. Hull is also a clinical instructor in psychology at Harvard Medical School and adjunct professor of leadership at New York University. He is the director of education and business development at the Institute of Coaching, a Harvard Medical School affiliate. He is also the Director of Global Development at the Institute of Coaching. Dr. Hull has been featured in Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, Investors Business Daily, and a wide range of media. He can be reached at www.jeffreyhull.com, and we will have all of that in the show notes. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Jeffrey Hull. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. It's a delight to have you here. So as you know, may I call you Jeff? Of course, yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, So Jeff, as you know, on Work From the Inside Out, we really like to talk about how people started their journey and and then we move on to where where they are today. So tell us about some of the earlier years, maybe some of your formative years, and how they they may or may not have influenced where you are today. Sure. I guess it depends on, of course, how far back you want me to go, but... Well, it's up to you, really. I I mean, some people go back as far as their childhoods. I had had one (laughs) guest who said when he was little, he wanted to be Superman. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I was little, I wanted to be Elton John. Oh, Well, that's a wonderful aspiration. <laughs> yeah, well, it turned out I didn't play the piano quite well enough to get that oh, accolade. Well. <laughs> but no, it probably makes sense for me to start really more at the beginning and, and early years of my career. Yeah. So, you know, your theme is work from the inside out. Yeah. And I spent the first few years of my professional career working in HR. Ah, okay. Um, so I worked in a couple of different companies. The The last one before I went out on my own was... Um, as the director of HR for a division of Booz Allen and Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And in that role, I had the privilege. I was based in New York. I had a global responsibility at a fairly young age. Um, and I was responsible for a lot of the different components of building their IT strategy practice out of New York and other cities around the world. So I was involved with recruiting, training, um, counseling, mentoring. All the different, I would call it the life cycle of employment for consultants. Yeah. So, you know, that's interesting because I know that um, you went to school at Bowdoin and you 
earlier on thought maybe you'd become a philosophy professor. True, but and so my, now I'm thinking, wow, you're 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 screening and probably working with people in the IT field. That's a that's a little bit of a departure from philosophy, wouldn't wouldn't you say? Yeah, and you can blame my mother for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I remember I remember going home from Bowdoin to Massachusetts where I grew up and telling my mother I wanted to be a philosophy professor. And she looked at me like, are you out of your mind? That's not a real job. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I know that generation. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> but it was probably wise because as much as I, um, I really enjoyed subjects like psychology and philosophy, it wasn't obvious how that was going to translate into a career. Yeah. And so, but, you know, I mean, it's interesting you asked that question because to be practical and to make my parents happy, I ended up going into business, sort of, so, right. so to speak. But, but HR gave me an opportunity to learn a lot of different people-related activities. Yeah. And to a certain extent, get my early chops um, around psychological issues. Yeah. You know, counseling people, mentoring people. And uh, so it, it was a good it was a good training ground for what happened later when I decided to become a coach yeah, and absolutely. a psychologist. Well, and I, I wonder also not, not to harp on the philosophy side of things for a moment, but I can imagine that even, even your, your studies in philosophy would inform some of the insights or some of the ways that you might think about psychology or HR or people or, or life and, and how, you thought about the way you interacted with people or the way that you might look at things. Oh yeah. I mean, for me, it all started in high school when I took a class called the history of ideas. Oh wow. In high school. In high school. Yeah. Right. And uh, I really just fell in love with looking at how Western thought had developed and Buddhist Eastern thought had developed at that time. We were still not, um, being particularly respectful to indigenous cultures, mm -hmm. which yeah. has hopefully changed not as much as it should. Right. Um, but yeah, just to look at the different world perspectives, worldviews, yeah. what they call the perennial philosophies was a good grounding in being yeah. able to, you know, work with all different kinds of people. Oh, wow. So, so there were some seeds planted. Absolutely. On, you know, yeah. that's, that's Absolutely. interesting to hear because, Sometimes you hear about people who majored in one thing and went in totally an opposite direction, but it, it makes sense that that there were some early seeds planted. And then even though you went into, you know, you say business, it sounds so different, but really, in, in some ways, it really built on a foundation that you were already, you already had. Yeah, I was you know, channeled by my family into doing something practical, I think yeah. is the bottom line. But even then, what I considered practical was something where I would be involved with working with, you know, human relations. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it was later when I started being in a more senior role, still early in my career, but, and I was involved in actually counseling difficult <laughs> senior executives. Oh. That, that's when I realized that I needed some more training. Uh -huh. And so it was sort of two things happened at once. I realized yeah. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I was 
potentially good at it. I didn't think I was initially good at it, but I had mm-hmm. a strong desire to get better. Yeah. And that's when I realized that it would be great to go back to school and get some grounding. And um, so I was kind of a late bloomer. I didn't go back to get my PhD in clinical psychology until I was in my late 30s. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you, it's never too late. I, oh, you're preaching to the choir now. <laughs> Definitely. So, um, so you went back in your late thirties and then did you, did you, now some people with a, with a, a background in clinical psych also then couple that with actual coaching training. Did you, did you get coaching training or did you uh, parlay your clinical psych background with coaching? Um, I think it's more clear to say that I was actually a failed therapist. So I became a coach. (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting perspective. I like that. (laughs) So I mean, not literally failed, but no, no. But basically what happened is that I was training in my doctoral program to become a psychotherapist. Ah, okay. And I loved the training. I loved yeah. the, the coursework. And I, and I very much appreciated the opportunity to be in therapy to, because to become a therapist, you have right. to have therapy. Right. Um, I loved that experience. I got a great deal out of that. And then I had supervision. Um, but the bottom line was that within a first, within a couple of years of having a psychotherapeutic practice, I realized that I had, because of my earlier background in corporate America, I had kind of a results orientation. Yeah. So just anecdotally, when my supervisor would say to me, what you want to do, Jeff, is make sure that your patients or your clients are with you for 20 years. (laughs) I remember saying to them, no, I'll kill myself. (laughs) I have to work with the same person for 20 years. Wow. 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 So I just realized that I was probably um, more practical and more focused on, um, I would say short, you know, short term, meaning it's six months or a year. Right. Kinds of of transformational activities. Mm -hmm. And so that's what kind of led me into the coaching space. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. I, I spent part of my earlier career in the mental health field and even worked in some psychiatric settings. And that, that definitely turned me more in the direction of coaching. I have to say. I mean, I have a lot of empathy and, and oh. um, a great deal of respect for people who work in those fields. Cause it's yeah. really challenging. Yeah. But it takes a certain type of uh, personality to have the perseverance, the yeah. patience mm-hmm. to work with people over a really extended period of time. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. But those insights also help you as a coach too, I think. I I think that having that background, it also helps you to discern between what what kinds of um, work you can do, things that are coachable and things that might require therapy. Absolutely. And I think it's a, I think it's actually gives you a leg up in so many ways or in, in, in the teaching that you're doing in the leadership role that you have with the Institute of Coaching. I think that, that you can offer so much to people with that background, because I think that there are a lot of, um, a lot of coaches who sometimes don't know where that line is drawn if they don't have that background. And it, it can get a little dangerous sometimes if they don't know. 
And, and, and I've had a lot of clients myself who are both in therapy and working right. you know, with me in coaching. So I, I think it's really valuable that you've had that experience. So when you went to do your PhD, did you, you did that solely at that point in your late thirties? And then, and then from there, did you, what did you do after you finished your doctorate? Well, like I said, I, uh, set up a psychotherapy practice oh, you for did. a couple okay. of years. And, but many of my so-called patients, I prefer the term client, um, yeah. but many of my clients were people that I had already worked with um, earlier because I, in HR, I had done consulting. Uh, um, so it was kind of a confluence of having built a network of folks that I had worked with in different companies. Yeah. And then I started seeing many of them privately and mm-hmm. then it was a mixture. You know, some of my clients were therapy clients. Some of them evolved into career coaching. Some of them evolved into, why don't you, I think you should come in and talk to the team at the leader in my leadership group. Yeah. And so over time, over a period of, let's say two to three years, I evolved into focusing more on leadership development. And it was in fact, right around then that I went to the first conference at the Institute of Coaching at Harvard. Okay. And, I'm, and I was really impressed that there were people affiliated with Harvard that were undertaking research and education around the evidence-based underpinnings of what makes coaching effective. Yes. Because up until that point, coaching had kind of been looked at as, um, I mean, not so much a real profession, yeah. but something that people were a little new agey. They call yes. themselves life coaches. Right. and. So I was actually really excited that there was an organization um, that was taking this very seriously. And that's why I started volunteering to be involved with them. And the rest rest is history. I've been um, engaged with the Institute for coming up on nine years now. Wow. Yeah, I agree. I think think that that's been really, really critical in terms of raising the profile of coaching and making it a more, I guess, I don't want to say legitimate because I think it it was legitimate, but I think it was confusing to some people. What, you know, what is this thing coaching? Right. Um, And so I think it's gotten clearer and clearer over the years. So, um, so in terms of the, the, let's say the, the blend of the work you're doing today, um, I know that you, you recently, um, delightfully relocated to Amsterdam. <laughs> I'm right. jealous. I'm a little jealous. I, I love, I love Europe. Uh, you've relocated to Amsterdam and in this, in the world that we live in today, it's amazing that you can live somewhere and still have such a strong presence in the U S um, and, and do all the things that you're doing. What, what is, what is your practice and your work look like today? And, uh, you know, your book came out a couple of years ago, Flex, The Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World. Tell us, tell us about what you're doing today and, and what makes you the happiest? <laughs> wow. Well, it certainly has been an adventure to uh, move to Europe and after spending about a year in quarantine in uh, 
New York. And uh, I basically didn't leave my house in upstate New York for 12 months. So coming to <laughs> a completely different environment is quite the adventure. But yeah. in many ways, it was really uh, something that had been percolating for a while. Yeah. Um, and I, it's a combination of things. I had been doing more and more international work already. Mm. So now we take it for granted to do virtual work, but I had been doing work in Europe. I had been coaching and teaching at the business school in Berlin. I had been doing, um, when my book came out, I went to Korea and did a number of programs in Korea. Wow. Um, so I had already started to do more international work and at the same time, the Institute of Coaching, which is based in Boston, obviously, um, was really at a place where there was an opportunity for us to expand our community building. Yeah. So we have a lot of amazing thought leaders that are outside oh, the U.S. Tremendous. Yeah. Right. So it was really an opportunity for me to um, continue work, doing international work, coaching, and also help to develop the 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 community and the programming that we do at the Institute beyond just the U S. So I continue to do a lot of work in the U S obviously. Um, but my focus now is on building our programs here in Europe, mm -hmm. extending to Asia. Mm. And part of, for me, when you get, when you talk about what makes me happy, I think part of what makes me really happy and passionate about what I do is the multicultural, multinational approach that we're taking. You know, so much of the work was U.S. centric for so long. And I think there's a, just a newfound respect for um, lots of different cultures that have a great deal of wisdom mm -hmm. and history that can be um, integrated into the work that we do. So it's not an either or proposition, but right. a synthesis. Right, right. So I just feel very excited to be part of that process, to yeah. increase yeah. the dialogue with people from Spain and Germany and Australia and Korea and India. And, and um, here, I, here in the Netherlands, it's interesting. There's a strong connection to South Africa. So mm. I just met yesterday with a, uh, colleague who's an executive coach who lives in Cape Town. The planet is getting small and the need to reach out and be connected in multicultural, multinational communities is, um, it's not only a passion of mine, I think it's really important in terms of the kinds of things that need to happen, need to happen everywhere. We can't, you can't fix climate change just by focusing on the U.S., right? Oh, so. Right, and that's and that's pro that's one of of many things. But I one think many, also, yeah. I agree, and I, I I concur with you that it's a it's a much it's a much richer life when you interact with people from a variety of cultures and backgrounds, and you not only see where the differences are, you also see where the commonalities are. And you realize that there are so many ways that we are alike. And yet when the differences come up, it, I don't know, I find it exciting. And I think it makes for a better picture, a richer picture of whatever it is that we're working on together. Well, and I think for me, it, it translates. It's funny you mentioned how I got started because for me, it translates back to when I was in college, I went to, I went to Europe for a year. Oh, Where'd you go? I lived in Vienna. 
for a year and studied philosophy <laughs> and music because even though I couldn't play the piano like Elton John, I was still a musician. <laughs> but you had to try, right? I had to try, right. <laughs> but, you know, the, I, I think the best thing about being in the role that I'm in is I get to continue being a student. Yeah. I mean, that's, to me, uh, the core of staying youthful, staying excited, staying enthusiastic, constantly growing. Yeah. As, co- as coaches, we have to stay on our growing edge, right? I agree. You know, I, I think, like you said, you know, to become a therapist, you have to be in therapy. I also think us coaches, we often, you know, we have to always be coaching and be coached. But right. part of that process, this is something I learned early on in my, in my life as a coach. I've been coaching 20 years now. I, one thing I learned early on is part of being a coach is also being a teacher. Even though you're not telling people what to do, you can share learning or impart learning in some ways. And I think it's, it's our job in some ways to also model some of that for people, to, right. to, be, uh, to be open and curious. I'm always using that phrase, be open and curious. And uh, I, I think you, you definitely are a great example of being open and curious, and um, it's wonderful. I also think, though, that I think some people don't make transitions that easily. I'm curious, you've made a lot of transitions, clearly, in the last many years within your career, right. and you've You've seen opportunities, you've stepped into them, now you've moved to another country, uh, you've already, you were already working in Europe quite a bit and other continents. Maybe talk a little bit about transitions and how those worked for you. Did, is that something that has come easily to you or is that something you had to work hard at? What, what has that been like for you? I mean, I think it's a mixture. I, yeah. I think I would be being glib if I said it was always super easy yeah, um, or that things always fall into place. Mm. I mean, there's going to be challenges, there's bureaucracies, there's breakdowns, there's things, you know, with the idea to move to Europe um, for us took place about two years ago and then COVID happened. <laughs> right. Talk about, you know, interrupted plans. Um, so yeah, learning to go with the flow and uh, recognize that nothing, not everything is going to be smooth sailing. Right. But right. holding on to an intention. Right. Um, right. But I also am a, am a huge believer in being willing to ask for help and getting support and having a network. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I uh, during the entire time of COVID, we had made a connection with a wonderful woman here in Amsterdam who was keeping her eye out for an apartment. Uh-huh. And, you know, just having someone that was doing that for us made it possible. Yeah. So yeah. I think it was earlier in my career um, when I left corporate America, uh, I think I was 34 years old and it was a huge decision to basically leave a pretty prestigious job with Booz Allen and Hamilton that could have turned me into a very wealthy partner, whatever. Yeah. Um, so there's a certain amount of risk taking that's involved in following yeah. your following your heart. Yeah. Um, but I think the biggest learning for me in that was that I wasn't going to be able to do anything by myself. I had to uh, 
have a support network. Mm-hmm. I had to have very, it, and it's not a quantity issue. I wouldn't say you have to have hundreds and hundreds of people, but you do need to have a short list yeah. of people that are connected. Um, mm-hmm. And I also have learned that there are people that are better at it than me. Mm-hmm. And it's better to be humble and take advantage of them than mm-hmm. be jealous and resentful. <laughs> I think, you know, I remember when I met, when I met um, early in my career and I was thinking, oh, one day I want to write a book and blah, blah, blah. And I would, and I had opportunity to meet Margaret Wheatley and I had an opportunity to meet David White, who are, you know, two of my heroes, uh, best-selling authors. And I was so intimidated by them. Well, the reason I bring it up is because here we are 20 years later and I, I'm friends with Margaret Wheatley and she endorsed my book and she read it and she gave me feedback. And, you know, there was a time when I think I would have pulled away from hanging around with those sort of so-called famous people. Right. And what I realized is that, and, and I coach people to learn the same way I learned rather than being jealous or resentful or fearful, right. Just be grateful that you have mm-hmm. an opportunity to connect with them, tell them how much you appreciate their work and, mm-hmm. They're so generous. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it, yeah. At, at the heart, at heart, most people are generous. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I think that comes under the category of kind of get out of your own way and see yeah. what's available to you, right? Right. I, right? I often will say, you know, we all put our pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> We're all people. Um, And yet I know what it's like to sort of revere somebody whose work you've admired and you, you kind of almost put them up on a pedestal a little bit, but when you take them off of the pedestal, you realize, yeah, they've accomplished a lot and there's a lot to admire about them. But if, if they appear to be open to you, well, then why not be open to them? Right. Right. And how, how wonderful that is, you know, and then likewise now, you know, I would imagine there are people who probably feel that way about you and your work. And I'm sure that you are equally as open to them and that there are a lot of people whose work you're supporting and helping. I don't think any of us is successful in a vacuum. No, absolutely not. And if I ever get stuck on a pedestal, please take me down. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be watching you. I'll be watching you. You know, there's another thing I I was just thinking about in your book, too. Um, It's actually at the very beginning of your book, but I think it's critically important. I've been thinking about it through this whole conversation. Um, You talk about in the beginning of your book, it's actually chapter one, you talk about the journey to self-awareness. And I think that the whole notion of knowing yourself is so important to all these steps that you're taking, all the things that you've done. You had to know yourself in some way. You had to know yourself to say, no, my journey is not to be a psychotherapist who has patients or clients for 20 years. Um, or even to say, no, my journey is not to become, you know, a lifelong partner at, you know, at Booz Allen, even if my mother is upset with me (laughs) 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 for not, for not, you know, joining the safety and security club of having, you know, a lifetime 
whatever salary right. or <laughs> endowed position at a consultancy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right? But yep. but it's about it's about knowing yourself and being able to feel grounded within that, even though from that place you probably made mistakes and made decisions and took steps where you didn't know how it was going to turn out. But you had to you had to follow those, you know, not to sound trite, but you had to follow your instincts. And clearly they've taken you to places that you're really happy about. Yeah. And I, and I would add to, I think everything you're saying is spot on in terms of how to track your own journey, you know, to your point about in your book about working from the inside out. I mean, you really need to track who you are and really get one. I, I think of it, and maybe it's because I'm a coach that I tend to think this way, yeah. but I tend to see it as a balance, a valence between two ends of a spectrum. On the one hand, it's really important early on in your development journey to think about your strengths. Look back on what you did in college. What were you naturally good at? What did you look like for me? What was my favorite course in high school? It was a history of ideas. What does yeah. that say about me? You know, yeah. so thinking about what you're really turned on, what your strengths are, yeah. and and get a pretty good picture. I'm always amazed when I meet a client for the first time, and I'll start with, "What are your five top strengths?" Mm. And people look at me with a blank stare, like I have no idea what my fight. You know. Right. What, what, or they're very hesitant. They're like, I think I'm good at, but I'm not sure. You know, they're very hesitant. So that's one part of the, of the process is getting very clear and confident and not egotistical, but just grounded in the things right. that you're passionate about, you're right. good at. Right. And then the other end of the spectrum is being willing to encourage and accept feedback that may not always be what you want to hear but is super helpful for you along the way. I mean, I can think of two or three times early in my career when I had what I would call very painful moments <laughs> where um, I, I'll give you one example because it's just always right there at the tip of my tongue, which was yeah. as a when I was promoted to director of HR yeah. at 31 years old or whatever, and the very first thing that I was told was that I was going to have to sit down with the company psychiatrist or the company psychologist. And they do an assessment as to whether they think that you're basically high potential, you know? In other words, could this person ever be a partner with the company? Right. And I have to say, at that stage in my career, it was the first time I think I'd ever actually sat across the table from a PhD psychologist. And so he interviewed me long story short, he came back with his report. And of course, a lot of, there was a lot of good things, but, you know, as a young career aspiration, all I cared about was the negative. I just wanted to know, I didn't pay any attention to all the good stuff, but his big concern was that I was overly zealous. He said, he said, Jeff, you can be a little bit overly passionate. You need to tone it down. Sometimes you're too exuberant in front of other partners and, and I remember going home that day thinking, oh, my God, I'm a disaster. What does that all mean? You know, how can you be too exuberant or too zealous or too passionate or whatever? But, you know, in retrospect, he was absolutely right. Really? Yeah, because what he was basically telling me is that if you're going to play in the big leagues, you need to be a good listener. And you need to time it. When you're going to intervene with something 
provocative or you're going to say something that might be triggering to someone else at the table, you don't want to just jump in. You want to be thoughtful. You want to be strategic. You want to reflect on when is the right moment? When can I have the most impact? And I have to say that after that, I did start to become much more I mean, for a little bit of what, for a little while, I became very quiet because I was like, (laughs) I think I've been put in my place. Yeah. But I look back on it now and I'm really grateful for that feedback. Well, like he gave it to you in a way that you could actually use it and assimilate it. I mean, eventually, (laughs) well, you, you know, I think it depends on how it's delivered too. Right. I'm feeling feeling a little protective of your 31 year old self because (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that's the mama bear in me, but, but, you know, it's like, you know, depending on how that kind of feedback gets delivered, did he deliver it to you in a way that you could actually use it? Or did you have to go through a lot of stuff in order to figure out what he really meant? You know? Um, So. Well, I probably would have preferred to have a little more coaching about how to translate that into what I was doing day to day. But back then you didn't get the coach. You just got the report. (laughs) Or, you know, rather than telling someone you're too much of something, give them an idea of what what could it look like? How could you channel that energy? Or, right. Right. you know, but that, of course, is a more coach-like approach, right? Yeah, and maybe today, hopefully, most organizations would do it that way. Yeah. Know? But I guess the bottom line is I'm saying that I'm, I, I think to your earlier point about self-awareness, yeah. it is the intersection between yes. knowing yourself, your passions, your strengths, your talents, and then being willing to listen to the way the outside world perceives you. Absolutely. It's not always easy for any of us. No. It's very no. valuable. Exactly. And the other, the other way that I look at that or I talk to people all the time is be aware of what your impact is. Read okay. the room, right? It's the same thing we talk about listening. Um, I think most people don't even think they have an impact. Which right? is ironic because if they're in the room, they're having impact. Right. So I can imagine, you know, you're working with leaders all the time. That must be a conversation that you have regularly with them. Yeah. And especially now, how to, for example, align and engage and elevate the performance and the communication and the collaboration of a team or a group virtually when they're all in little boxes on, you know, Microsoft Teams or or whatever. It's a very very complex process. So it takes a lot of uh, intentional thinking through what's going to work. And the playing field's almost a little more level in some ways because it's almost, it's newer for everyone. Right. You know, right. yeah, the playing field is level. It's more dumb. It's there's there's very little hierarchy when you're all in your little boxes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you're but, also singing the Brady Bunch theme song. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, you've got all of those same kinds of issues where the introverts don't want to turn on their videos and, you know, you want to go around the room and not everybody wants to speak and or or you have the typical extrovert who takes up all the time and how do you interrupt them and tell them to let somebody else have some time. Right. So all of those things that existed in the real world are actually exaggerated in the virtual space. Yeah. So on the one hand, it's an opportunity because if you get good at it, right. You can really have a high point, high performing team. Wow. 
but it's challenging. Yeah. So sounds like you have your work cut out for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there's definitely no lack of opportunity right now in terms of leveraging. um, I mean, I'm having so many powerful conversations with my clients and all sorts of industries from investment banking to pharmaceutical to software to nonprofits. And they're having similar kinds of conversations with me about how do I mentor? How do I coach? How do I leverage the group dynamic? How do we get more collaborative? How do I work with people that may never even meet? I had one group where just three, half the team has not met the other half of the team because yeah. of a year long COVID. Yeah. So exciting. Know, it's, challenging. It is. It's, it's, it's both. Yeah. It's very challenging and it, and it's really, it is, it really pulls the creativity out of us in terms of working with these teams. So, so tell us what, what's next, what's coming up for you that you're excited about? Um, I think what I'm most excited, I'm in the middle right now of writing a book proposal and working with some colleagues that are true experts in some of these leading edge um, design, eco-sustainability, architecture, um, community building spaces. And my passion is to bring some of that forward thinking, um, those forward thinking ideas into leadership. Because we need to, in a sense, I think we need to reinvent what's going on at the leader in the C-suite. Yeah, um, and it, and the, it's sort of the good news and the bad news. I mean, yeah. the bad news is we're running out of time, uh, as you can all see. It's happening every day. Yeah, there are huge disruptions from the pandemic and from climate change, and we really have to see ourselves as just one global community. Yes, and we don't have a lot of time. Yeah. On the other hand, on the more optimistic side, I'm really excited by leaders who are open to recognizing that they can have a really positive impact on the world. And there are companies that are starting to become much more value-oriented and open to diverse perspectives, changing the way they do business in ways that are more uh, sustainable, Um so, yeah, one of my passions, I've been learning from um, different, different theorists and, mm-hmm. and thinkers that are into regenerative mm-hmm. work and ecosystems design, systemic coaching, mm-hmm. um, and looking at how, we, how can we translate that sort of bigger picture mm-hmm. conceptualization mm-hmm. of what it means to be a leader. How can we make that practical for people? So oh, that they can that. actually translate it into the real world. Yeah, I'm getting involved with some of that as well myself now. So uh, we'll have to compare notes down the road. Oh yeah, I mean I'm a sponge, so yeah. learning all yeah. the way. Love it. <laughs> I love it. I I'm I'm on that train, Jeff. So one last question for you. Sure. And that is, you know, a lot of people who are listening to this um, might want to know. You know, they're, they may be thinking about what's next for them. What might be a, a key piece of advice you'd give to someone who's contemplating their next move or they're thinking about a transition? What would be a, a key piece of advice you'd give them? I mean, I think about 
taking time to really get clear about what you're passionate about, where your energy and your motivation moves towards, mm-hmm. um, and not ignoring that. Yeah. You know, I think there is a tendency in our, especially in our Western culture, to be very practical and I got to pay the mortgage and I've got to take care of the kids or whatever, all of which is valid. Right. Um, but at some point in your life, take some time to step back and reflect right. on what you're most passionate about and where does that get manifested in your life, in your job or in hobby or something. Right. Um, and I know that that's not as easy to do as it sounds. I've, I've had clients who have said to me, I don't really know what my passion is, or I don't really know what I really want to do. Mm. And sometimes I, maybe I get overly simplified about this, but I'll sometimes say to them, well, you know what I want you to do? I know it's kind of old fashioned to buy a newspaper, so you can do it online if you want. Yeah. But get a copy of the Sunday New York Times, which yeah. is about this thick. And it still is. It's one of the few things that is in the newspaper, yeah. right? So either get the newspaper or get the online version. Yeah. And then go to what you're most drawn to. Mm-hmm. What, what do you always read? Yeah. What's your favorite section, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that'll start to give you information about what yeah. you're really interested in. Yeah. And then the second thing is if, okay, so then you discover, you discover you're really interested in something that you don't have any skills, you're not connected, right? Yeah. You know, you're a software programmer and you realize that the part that you really love about in the newspaper is about theater. So it's right. like, Okay, there's no connection between those things. Well, yes, there, there is. are. Yeah, exactly. So you're you're going to go to my next point, which is start to explore the connective tissues between what you are most interested in and the people that are doing things that connect them. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And then, you know, often the resistance to that will be, oh, but I'm not really good at networking and I don't want to go to groups and blah, blah, blah. I will say to people, do something very simple, like look at what you just read in the New York Times, go to an online um, venue like Medium or Reddit or someplace where there's people posting around those topics and write to those people. I loved your article. Tell me a little where I can find some more information. Start a dialogue. And you just never know. You, you've just made a connection. So You know, um, I tell people call or get in touch with your local library and ask a reference librarian to give you a report, give you, you know, tap into some databases. People forget that their librarians are amazing resources. They can find information for you that you will never find yourself on the internet. And they forget about that. Um, it's incredible. I've, I've used the Boston Public Library. <laughs> now they're going to get inundated. Um, but I've used, <laughs> I've used the business library at the Boston Public Library many times when I have very specific kinds of questions for clients. And they produce these amazing reports for free uh, that give us all kinds of information so that we can take a deeper dive into some searches that we're doing. It's incredible. So... No, I Great agree. advice. Great advice. I, I think that the key also to what you're saying is don't tell yourself it's not possible. Right. There's always a way. And also don't tell yourself that it has to happen overnight. Right. Or that you have to go from A to Z. Just go from A to B. 
right? Because I think that's what people do is they they think they have to to accomplish the end point. They don't. They just have to take a step. Yeah. I have so many people who have, who write to me or I meet at conferences and they say, oh, I'd love to be an executive coach. Can I, how do I, what do I have to do to become a leadership coach or an executive coach? And I say, okay, well, what do you do? You know, what is your background? Yeah. And it can be all over the map, right? But then I say to them, well, first of all, become a student, get involved in things like the Institute of Coaching and take some training and become a student. But then keep in mind, it could take years, not weeks, not months. I mean, it took me seven years to become an executive coach. And even then I was a, even then I was a very early executive coach. <laughs> so you also worked as an executive, you worked right, as a leader. Right. So you brought that to the fold. It wasn't just the training or the education behind it. You had the experience. So there's a lot that you brought to it. And, yeah, and- anything like that. I mean, it just, I remember when I first wanted to write a book and I thought, oh, that can be done in like six months or a year. And you learn after you've done it a couple of times. No, it takes a little bit longer than that. Yeah. But, you know, once you recognize that these kinds of things take time, then you can just kind of relax and stick with it and one step at a time. And one one day you wake up and you have a new career. It just happens. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, Like, um, I think a lot of people say this, but I've heard Dory Clark say it many times. I was an overnight sensation, 10 years in the making. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yep. Dory's a good yeah. friend of mine and I completely yeah. agree with her. <laughs> and well, she is one of those people who can write a book in, in a short period of time. She, yeah. And so, and Dory's also one of those people who intimidates me. And I was <laughs> like, oh my God, I can't possibly be on, be on her interview show. Oh, I'm not famous yeah. enough, you know? And she's, great she's easy she's a friend so yeah she's very grounded and she's delightful yeah yeah so it's uh it's always possible yeah it is and on that beautiful note unless there's something that you think we didn't touch on that you want to make sure we talk about i think we'll we'll complete this conversation yeah, no, it was great. The only, I mean, the only thing that I would mention is that anyone who's listening to this, who's yes. at any level in their career, thinking yes. about whether they should be a leader yes. or whether they are one, I have a great book for you to read. <laughs> oh, well, I think I know what it's called. It's called Flex, The Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World. And we know that it is a changing world. And What's the best way to navigate a changing world? To flex and to always be a learner. Right. And to not be afraid to be a leader, no matter where you are. No matter where you are in the organization, right? Right. I wanted to write a book that had multiple stories of people that were not famous white male CEOs. Yay. Not that I have a problem with any of them. I love them. I revere them. But... This book is filled with lots of other kinds of leaders, and I want people to feel like they can connect with that. So The other thing this book is filled <laughs> with is not only great examples, but it's, it's a very hands-on book. You can really apply it to yourself. There's, there's 
great questions, exercises, all kinds of ways that you can really, you can take a deep dive into this book and really assimilate it to yourself. It's, it's a completely engaging book. And I was telling Jeff this earlier, I love the way it's formatted and laid out. It's just such a, it's such an accessible read on every level. So I am really thrilled to have my own signed copy um, and I appreciate it. It is, it's a, it's a, it's a really, really great book. And I certainly am, I've been gifting it to a couple of people already and will be recommending it highly. And it, all of this will be in the show notes. Um, so thank you so much again for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. I know that you're hugely busy. So um, thank you. My pleasure. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Jeff Hull. It was really interesting to speak with him about his professional transitions. What is your key takeaway from our interview? If you are interested in any of the resources or links mentioned in today's show, you can find them on the blog page of my website at TammyGullerLobe.com. Just look for episode 143. Are you thinking about what your next professional move is going to be? Maybe you're just feeling a little stuck. Stay tuned for my new book, Work from the Inside Out, Break Through Nine Common Obstacles to Design a Career That Fulfills You, available in November 2021 in print and digital ebook editions through my website, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent bookstores. If you were inspired by this episode with Jeff, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And please do subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you enjoying the podcast? I'd appreciate your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find through my website at www.workfromtheinsideout.com. Just click on the Apple Podcast button and follow the instructions provided there. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, it's never too late or too impossible to increase your sense of fulfillment and satisfaction in your work and other meaningful activities. I'd love to hear how it's going for you. Feel free to drop me a line. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Work From the Inside Out podcast. For more information, you can find us at www.workfromtheinsideout.com.